0: Now entering Nerdist.com
1: Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 12, The Menagerie.
0: Welcome, members of the tribunal,
2: to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray, and I'm John Champion. You are listening to the show that has a singular mission: to seek out the meanings and messages of every episode of Star Trek, and we mean every one, to find out what still holds water in this twenty-first century world. Today, meet the crew of the Enterprise again for the first time,
0: again for the first time. Again. <laughs> Today we're looking at Star Trek's only two-parter for the original series, and we're doing it in just one podcast episode. Spot freaks out and steals the Enterprise to take his old captain, Christopher Pike, to Starfleet's one and only forbidden planet, Talos IV. This is the Menagerie. Didn't we already meet the crew of the Enterprise again for the first time again? <laughs> for the first time <laughs> again. Uh, yeah, a few times. It's You know, I I, I was thinking... Before we started this episode, what we should do is just record like, you know, 10 minutes at the beginning, five minutes at the end (laughs) and just edit in episode one of the mission log into episode 12 of the mission log, because that's kind of I mean, I applaud the whole, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle thing. But if you've seen the cage, you've seen half of both of these episodes.
2: That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's a little bit of uh, foreshadowing to our audience is that we're going to try to stay away from a lot of the specifics about the cage because we figure that the best thing that you can do is go back to episode one of the podcast, which is essentially going to be episode zero. Of Star Trek and uh, watch the cage listen to our podcast about the cage then you'll understand what that show is really all about then you can kind of come back to us and uh, we're going to talk about the different aspects of the menagerie what makes that one unique I feel like we should send out a pamphlet with this episode. (laughs) <laughs> should it should it be a flow chart? <laughs> with, you know, ins- listen to this part, then go back. <laughs>
0: with instructions, right, on how to do it. Hey, before we, uh, before you get started, though, on the multi-pronged, you know, offensive, and not, right. not, not offensive. I mean, not, not offensive in a bad way.
2: Do you find me offensive?
0: <laughs> you know, more like doing your thing. Before you get started doing your thing with this episode, we do want to remind everyone uh, that we do want to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, Mission Log Pod is our name on Twitter. Or you can leave us a message via Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling us, just like Grandpa used to do. Not your grandpa, I don't think he ever called us. 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Your comments may be used on a future edition
2: of Mission Log. And um, there's a website, John. Oh, yes. Missionlogpodcast.com, which is part of the com vast array of podcasts. And I have to say the site gets cooler and cooler looking every time I check it out. So you've got this thing that you do and I love it. It's one of the things
0: I love about you. <laughs> Where, where, yeah. you, where you, you, comb the, uh, you comb the depths or, or maybe you just go online or maybe you ask a dude. I don't know. But you come up with trivia for every episode. Please tell me you have not let me down and that there is trivia for the menagerie.
2: If there's one thing in life that keeps me going, Ken, it's a desire to not let you down. You. Um, and I do. I, I comb the internet. I also go to uh, a handful of books that are excellent sources about Star Trek. And every now and then, we dip into the Roddenberry archives to uh, get the, the nitty gritty, the lowdown on Star Trek trivia. So the first and most important thing to understand about The Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, and we are covering Parts 1 and 2 in this single podcast, is that... The episodes, the combination of episodes, was created to fill a gap in the writing schedule. They had already produced uh, 15 or so shows. you about mid-season or mid-production cycle. And they realized, hey, we are running out of scripts. We need to do something quick. And Gene Roddenberry, being as industrious as he was, the whole reduce, reuse, recycle thing, decided, aha, we can take the cage, which has never been seen before, chop up its pieces and stretch that out into a two-parter. Now, the wraparound, all of the courtroom intrigue that we'll get into with our story description, was originally written by John D.F. Black, and uh, he has sort of uh, a rocky history with Star Trek. He was around from the beginning, um, but the script that he turned in, well, nobody liked it, or at least Gene Roddenberry didn't like it, and he completely and utterly rewrote it, just started from scratch. Now, Black actually complained to the Writers Guild, but he lost because... This was a new script. Um, Black would show up again every now and then. He actually uh, worked on a couple episodes of the first season of Next Generation. But he is one of those figures, one of those names you don't hear often, uh, at least not as often as, say, Gene Roddenberry, Robert Justman, when you're talking about the early creation of Star Trek. Now, here's an interesting bit of trivia. This was actually not the first time that gene had considered reusing the cage um would it blow your mind completely if i told you he thought about shooting new footage like showing the crash of the columbia and releasing this theatrically that's kind of a neat idea it is it's a weird idea yeah
0: i mean because it would still be i mean unless (laughs) unless it took a very 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 long time to crash the columbia um it would have been a short movie
2: Yeah, well, I think there would have been other scenes cut in as well. The issue was that they couldn't get Jeffrey Hunter back because by the time he had finished with Star Trek Mm -hmm. and, of course, he he passed away much, much too early in 1969. Yeah. Um, But at that time, he he was a rising star and the cost and the difficulty of getting him back would have been too much. But, hey, you filmed the crash of the Columbia. You maybe put Tolosians at home hanging out. And uh, then you can stretch out this episode into a full-length feature. Um, but the question then would have been, well, when do you release it? Did he have in mind releasing it before Star Trek went on the air? Or do you do like The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and you release it during summer hiatus? And um, you just hope that people kind of put together the timeline on their own. Well, I mean, it could just be
0: another – well, I guess it couldn't just be another adventure because it does take place on the Enterprise.
2: right yeah so
0: it's not like like the whole thing they did with Battlestar Galactica where it's like oh and here's
2: this other thing that was happening during the second Cylon War right yeah right um couple other points uh This episode actually has two director credits. So Mark Daniels directed The Menagerie. Robert Butler directed The Cage. And they are given single credits for parts one and two of The Menagerie, respectively. Um, Sean Kenny here steps in in the uh, Christopher Pike role because Jeffrey Hunter, like I said, they couldn't get him or they wouldn't be able to get him for this one. Mm -hmm. And um, this was actually produced right after another episode of Star Trek called Court Martial. Uh, But it's a good thing they didn't run in order because Star Trek would have just become its own Law and Order series at that point. It would have been all courtroom drama all the time. They're just on a spaceship. (laughs) That's such a great idea.
0: That's such a great idea. And they could have uh, like Raymond Burr guest every now (laughs) and then. It was Perry Mason, right? And, uh, And for the defense... Oh, no, for the prosecution, I guess it was Ham... What was his name? Uh, Oh, never mind. Sorry, I'm I'm being bad. I shouldn't shouldn't do that. You know what we should do instead? What's that? Let's not talk about uh, Perry Mason, for crying out loud. Let's talk about The Menagerie.
1: Just for listening today, you get not one, not two, but three episodes of Star Trek in one. Now how much would you pay? And would your cost be as high as the toll that might be exacted from Spock?
0: Prologue. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to Starbase 11. Everyone there is glad to see him, but nobody knows why they came. Kirk says Spock says they got a message from former Enterprise Captain Christopher Pike, but Commodore Mendez, commander of Starbase 11, says that's impossible. Pike was exposed to mega amounts of radiation, saving a bunch of cadets. He cannot move much. He cannot talk at all. Safer blinking light messages, one for yes, two for no. Thus, he could not have sent the message. Pike refuses to see the three men, though he does agree to see his former science officer, Mr. Spock. Spock tells Pike that he'll commit both mutiny and treason to take Pike somewhere that's only six days away. Pike beeps and blinks no, but Spock seems determined as we head to the opening credits. Act 1. Kirk is stymied. He insists on going over every record Starbase 11 has, since if Spock says they got a message, they must have. Mendez tasks Computer Central with checking and rechecking, since if Kirk says, if Spock says it, it's good enough for Kirk, it's almost good enough for Mendez. Don't try to figure that sentence out. You'll hurt yourself. The checking and rechecking gives Spock time to get into Computer Central, where he's able to send fake messages to the Enterprise, including new flight instructions that will leave the Enterprise controlled by the computer. The whole time, Pike is blinking no. Kirk begins to wonder whether Spock is up to something. Maybe there was no message, though Bone says that's nuts. First of all, Spock's a Vulcan, and second, Spock is Spock. No way he lied. Still trying to get to the bottom of things, Kirk is given a super top-secret briefing on Talos IV, a planet off-limits to anyone in a big way, though one once visited by the Enterprise when it was commanded by Pike with Spock as science officer. Then a shock. Make that two of them. The practically immobile Pike has disappeared, and the Enterprise has warped out of orbit without Kirk. Act 2. Away from Starbase 11, Spock orders radio silence. He also pays no heed to the small ship that's chasing the Enterprise. Bones is confused by the goings-on, though Spock plays him a fake message of Kirk, saying, It's all good. Meanwhile, the craft pursuing the Enterprise loses power. Turns out it's a shuttlecraft carrying Kirk and Mendez. Spock brings it aboard, then turns himself over to Bones to be detained. The charge is Mutiny Doctor. This does, however, not return control of the ship to the people, and onward they press to Talos four. Act 3. With time to kill, they decide to convene a hearing on Mr. Spock's actions. Spock insists that it be a court-martial instead, with Kirk, Mendez, and Pike sitting in judgment. And it's a serious trial, as Spock will be killed if they make it to Talos four. going there is the only crime in the Federation for which there is still a death penalty. Mendez demands as part of the court-martial to know why Spock has done what he's done. This allows Spock to make public all of the goings-on around the first trip to Talos IV. And so, everybody starts watching The Cage. Mendez wants to know how they have such great recordings, since such recordings are not normally made. Spock won't tell him, but Pike confirms, one blink yes, the recordings are legit. Act 4. We watch Kirk watch Spock smile at plants on Talos four. We also learn that the evidence being presented is being broadcast from Talos four. Act 5. The court-martial continues. Mendez again wants the whole thing to stop as even communication with Talos four is verboten. Never mind going there. Spock says they have no choice. They are now under control of The Keeper. And so we spend the bulk of part two of the menagerie watching the rest of the cage. We learn of the Telosian trick of mind control. We see Pike refight his fight on Rigel. We see him gain feelings for Vina, to the point that Kirk thinks Pike's resolve was weakening all those years ago. Along the way, we also learn that the Telosians care about Pike. At the end of Act 7, the Telosians stop broadcasting the recordings to the Enterprise, and Kirk, Mendez, and Pike find Spock guilty. Act 8. With the Enterprise in orbit around Talos IV, the broadcasts resume. We watch the end of the cage with the crew of the Enterprise, with one major omission. A healthy-looking Vena returns to the underground layer of the Talosians alone. Having seen the whole show, Kirk begins to argue for leniency for Spock to Mendez, who disappears before his eyes. He was an illusion the whole time, projected by the Talosians. They say Kirk's strength of will would have allowed him to regain control of the Enterprise at some point, and so the diversion of the court-martial. Kirk says Spock should have told him, but Spock says one person facing the death penalty was plenty. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, the real Mendez on Starbase 11 has seen the Talosian TV show. No punishment will be doled upon Spock. It's up to Kirk and Pike what to do at this point. Pike decides to live on Talos 4. And here's the money shot from the cage repurposed. The healthy-looking Vena and a healthy looking pike go underground to live happily ever after the
2: end. I think that is one of the coolest reuses of footage. You know, in it, this whole thing.
0: It is. And I know that I watched the menagerie a long time ago somewhere. It stuck with me that I don't know if I was figuring it out or if I was remembering it, but I was like, Oh, I know what they're going to do. I going to get back there. I, I got to say though, I, 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 once again, and I know we're not going to talk a whole lot about the cage cause we talked a whole lot about the cage. Um, several weeks ago. Right. I think the Telosians might be underselling themselves. How do you think? I think they might be selling themselves a tiny bit short because they are able somehow. Okay. So Kirk and Spock and Bones are on um, Starbase 11, which Mm -hmm. is really more a planet than a Starbase. We can talk Mm -hmm. about that another time if you want to. Um, They're there and they're there with the real Mendez. And then somewhere along the way, the Telosians are able to replace the real Mendez with the projection of Mendez, which is on the shuttlecraft and then is on the Enterprise. And they're able to maintain that, you know, idea in everybody's minds all the way across, you know, like six days at warp whatever. I think it was warp right. seven. I can't remember. Six days at warp whatever, they're able to do that. Seriously, they couldn't get food delivered
2: <laughs> well, you know what? It, it's funny that you should mention that because uh, one of our listeners, Will, uh, wrote in before we recorded this episode saying, when exactly was Commodore Mendez replaced? Because it, <laughs> it, it, it kind of throws things off depending on how you look at this. If he was replaced on Starbase 11, yeah. well, that means that the Talosians have a huge reach. Yeah. You know, their mental powers go. And, and if that is the case, why would you have a starbase that close to Talos IV? Unless That seems like bad planning. Unless it's to keep people away from Talos Four. Maybe it was their whole job. As far but, as couldn't, but couldn't they then be affected by what's going on with the Talosians? The Talosians could take that over at any point and mess with them with their high-end illusions. Well, are we even sure there's
0: a Starbase eleven? now that you mention it?
2: Oh, great. All right. Now we're in the matrix. <laughs> if, we right. though, if we assume, though,
0: if we assume that there is a Starbase <laughs> you just 11 completely
2: blew my mind. Well,
0: sorry, dude. It's yeah, it's part of what I do. Um, yep. If we assume though that there is a Starbase 11, I know exactly when he was replaced. OK. Commodore, it's a long trip. I want to make sure before we leave that we're not going to have to pull over. So mm. if you need to, and then there's your perfect opportunity.
2: I, 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 I think you're right. Couple of things I'll point out in yeah. the uh, in the story, and by the way, I, I watched uh, the Blu-ray remaster, so TOS R TOS mm-hmm. remastered. For those of you in the know, um, when they first beamed down to Starbase Eleven, that's Mike and Denise Akuta, uh standing to the left of your screen having a conversation. I thought that was really cool uh, that they got to work themselves into original series Star Trek because they've been working on Trek since uh next generation and they're kind of the the historians, the keepers of all that is Trek in terms of being like a, a source of reference for the shows. So I thought that was really cool that they worked in extra people and they got to work in themselves in that shot. Um Now, did you notice the same thing or did you do the same thing that I did, which is when uh, the Commodore opens up the confidential your eyes only book about Talos IV? I I freeze framed on that. I wanted to read every single word of it. I absolutely did not do that. Okay, well, here's the (laughs) thing that jumped out at me. I'll I'll spoil it for you. Okay. so you get the bare bones. You know, the Enterprise was the only ship to visit Talos IV. Mm -hmm. And then it says on there twice Captain Christopher Pike. And half Vulcan science officer Spock. So, so it says that in the description, and then at the very end, you know, Captain Christopher Pike and half Vulcan science officer Spock. And I thought, really? What, what, how? It, it, that's, that's just how we describe people in official reports. Is we we just immediately make sure we make a note of their race. That seems a little. That seems a little odd. Um,
0: yes. Well, the the return trip to Telos for the, the documentation on that we'll say and one eighth Cherokee Captain.
2: <laughs> right, Captain.
0: Right. I lost his name because I'm still trying to figure out what do we say. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Captain Kirk. One eighth, yeah, one eighth Cherokee Captain Kirk, and he's also one sixty fourth Irish.
2: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes like a family
0: tree. It's like every every report's like twenty eight pages, although you know twenty three of those are just everybody's lineage.
2: Yeah, yeah. We're just actually we're going to take a blood sample and we're going to give you a whole DNA history on every single crew member. That'll be how we track people from now on. Um, I'm sorry. That's awesome. So, hey, we get to see a shuttlecraft now, um, even though this episode was filmed a little later. uh, So the the shuttlecraft had made an appearance production-wise before this, but now we finally get to see one, and they changed the name on that shuttle when it's coming from uh, Starbase 11 for the remastered edition. Okay. So they had used the Galileo in the original production of this, but they went back and they used the Picasso. They they gave it a new name and a new registration number. Uh, So now we get to see the shuttle. We would have seen it if things were running in production order, but now we get to see it again for the first time again for the first time Um,
0: yeah well it makes no sense that the enterprises um shuttlecraft would have been down there because spock bones and mccoy beamed down right what do they send the shuttlecraft just in case
2: exactly (laughs) so it makes sense that it would be the starbase 11 shuttlecraft and you know just from a, a, a kind of a the point of view that we have is very unique because we watched the cage first and now that star trek is behind us in terms of being produced and aired And everybody knows about the cage. Um, I thought it was really cool to revisit that episode and notice all the differences again of the cage, the pilot, and then Star Trek we know and love. Because there's a real palpable difference in that, that earnestness of Captain Pike's crew. And the kind of more relaxed approach that we get with Kirk and with his crew. The pacing feels very different. But then the thing that I thought is that if you were a TV viewer in 1966 and this episode aired and you didn't know anything about the production history of Star Trek and you knew nothing about the cage, this had the potential to absolutely blow your mind.
0: Yeah. You know? Yes and no. I mean, not as much. Not as much as for the people who saw it for the first time. See, that's weird because we talk about well, you know, Gene Roddenberry used to show this, you know,
2: when he was traveling, and then it was aired for the first time in what was it, eighty-seven or eighty-eight, on television. Right, right. But it when is, Gene was traveling around, you know, he, he maybe hit a couple of conventions, but I don't think it really picked up steam until the seventies. But I mean, it was out showing, but so. it was
0: actually almost completely shown. There are very few parts. I mean, with us having just watched it a few weeks ago for, the, for, you know, for, for this show, mm-hmm. there are very few parts that are missing. And we don't get Yeoman Colt being as ditzy on the bridge. Right, right. At the beginning and at the end of the episode. Those two things we don't get. And, of course, I mean, they do screw with the, um, they screw with the continuity as far as in the episode The Cage. Uh, Christopher Pike actually watches the healthy Vina and the healthy Christopher Pike go down um, below uh, the surface of Talos 4. So right. he knows that she's going to be happy because she's in love with him and he's actually okay with, you know, this image of him going down there to live forever with her because he did have feelings for her and, you know, he wants her to be okay and wants her to be happy.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, aside from those three things, though, I mean, it's practically the entire episode. We get the whole thing with number one. We don't get the part about him saying, um, I'm not used to having a woman on the bridge. Well, you understand, number one. it's It's not the same. Right, right. Um, But we do still get Spock going, the women, which is still a fantastic line. It's great to see that again. It was weird to me, though. I will say this. It was weird to me that they left the part with Spock smiling about the plants making noise.
2: Yeah, I thought that was a little odd, too, because it's really out of place. Well, I mean,
0: it's neat that it shows how different alien worlds can be. Right. I mean, that is a neat part of it. But then Spock smiling at that. Yeah, it just seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently. Well,
2: Which is strange because you have a line in there. Uh, you know, McCoy keeps making a case of Spock being incapable of lying and having repressed his emotions so far that, that the human side is practically gone. Cut to a giggly Spock holding <laughs> blue leaves. <laughs> you, you he's, not,
0: he's not giggly.
2: Well, he, he's, he's awfully smiley about it. He
0: is very smiley about it. Blue yeah. leaves make him happy.
2: But, but here's the thing. So but think about put yourself in the position of a Star Trek fan in 1966 and you've watched 10 episodes of this so far mm-hmm. um, and it, starting with the man trap and, and then you're hit with this and you go, wow, I, I, imagining that you knew nothing about the cage up until this point, And right. you go, wow, this show just showed me its entire like alternate origin story. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going back 13 years. We're seeing this captain we never heard of before. And and I think that is a really cool kind of daring way to do TV that really you only see now when, when long running show, you know, Doctor Who will do this kind of thing every now and then where they'll do a story and just not even have the doctor in it at all. Yeah. They'll just have other people talking about him or reacting to him or to what he has done, and and I think that's a really daring way to make TV. And this must have felt incredibly daring at the time. Now, the average TV viewer didn't know. Oh, they've been sitting on this pilot for a couple of years; it didn't sell, <laughs> and you know, we we have to make do. We've got to use it somehow. Yeah. Uh, but just to see it and go, oh wow, the, this Star Trek thing that I like has this rich history now. Yeah. Of other characters and other ships and other missions i i i just think that's a really neat thing
0: it is a really neat thing um mm-hmm. i want well you know having not been there we should, we should maybe we should talk to somebody who actually you know was a gigantic fan from the time that the show was first on because i wonder how that did register or resonate
2: with people i agree yeah and that fan can call us at three two three two three, <laughs> three two three five two two five six four one and let us know <laughs> One last thing uh, before we get into our topical discussion. Um, Kirk takes a shuttlecraft from Starbase 11. He may or may not have the real Commodore Mendez on board, okay, because we don't know when he got replaced uh, with the... Talosian illusion and he pushes himself to the point of no return he doesn't have enough fuel to get back to starbase 11 and yet he doesn't know if the enterprise is going to turn around and rescue him right now theoretically the Talosians have been at least aware of if not in control of what is going on here right so if Spock had not made the decision to turn around and retrieve Kirk would the Talosians have just let him die spock wouldn't have made that decision well we hope not it seems like
0: he hesitated a little well i mean let's back up a little bit i, I don't know mm-hmm. the telosians actually have the power to save him i mean i think the best that telosians could do is make kurt think he wasn't dead you right. know until he actually was right. <laughs> because we right. sort of established when we talked about the cage that they can't just blink things into existence I mean, it's still yeah. unclear whether Vina was ever actually with Pike the whole time. We still right. don't know. I mean, until the very, well, until the very end, actually, of the menagerie, we believe that they're both together. But who knows? I mean, their skill at mind bleepery, as we talked <laughs> about so many weeks ago, is fairly stunning. That said, I don't think they would have been able to save Kirk had Spock not turned around. Now, one would hope that what the Talosians would have done was really gotten on Spock's case and said, dude, seriously, you can't leave him there to die. But, I mean, you know, that's how they might have saved him. But, I mean, Spock's never going to let Kirk die. Yeah. That's just not going to happen.
2: All right. Just wanted to make sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to watch Star Trek with the characters from Star Trek. But did we all see the same thing in the episode?
0: So if there's one thing that we all know, it is that uh, Vulcans are completely logical. They have no emotion. (laughs) They got nothing. (laughs) Now, granted, it is stated all over Starfleet. It's probably written on the bathroom walls at Starfleet Command that Spock is only half Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Because apparently that was the kind of thing that mattered to people in the 23rd century. But but we do in this episode get to see Spock at what could be his most compassionate. It raises an interesting question, though. There, there, well, I mean, th- this whole episode, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is about loyalty. And so I guess if we're talking about Spock, is his sense of loyalty um, misplaced here?
2: And, and for that matter, you have to ask that question again of Kirk, yep. certainly. Yep. Um, of McCoy to an extent Mm -hmm. um, it's really tough because I I, I think this is one of those episodes where you're balancing out the reality of dramatic production. How do we move the story along? How do we get out the exposition that we need to get out? And then how do we also stay true to the characters Mm -hmm. and, and how do we make those play out in a, you know, richly emotional and logical way? And I, I kept feeling like I was being toyed with in this episode where I already have established that Kirk, McCoy and Spock are our heroes. Mm-hmm. They're the people that we look up to, the people we kind of uh, aspire for the best part of ourselves to be like. Right. But part of that is putting yourself in that same situation and, and saying, what would I do and who would I trust and, and how, how much am I willing to potentially break the law? from my friend, just on a hunch that my friend is right. And Spock has done every single thing that he could to stack the deck against him he has tampered with records, he has sent false communications, he has kidnapped a person, and he has stolen a ship. <laughs> you know, it does not get worse than that,
0: <laughs> you know? Except he has also stacked the whole court-martial thing. I mean, the reason they're having the court-martial as opposed to the hearing is because the court-martial demands that everything be entered into the record and that things move in a certain order. They move with a certain speed. Had they just had a hearing, well, that might have just wasted a little time, but then they would have tossed him into the brig or, or, or put him back under a... Under, uh, under arrest in his quarters until they could convene a true court martial, And that would, well, that would have ruined the whole, you know, the whole timing thing of him being able to get the whole thing, um, made public. I mean, he stacked the deck against him, stacked the deck against himself, excuse me, but he's also at the same time made sure that everything that he needs to be heard will be heard. I mean, he even, he even, um, jockeys Mendez into position, gets him to ask him for stuff, that is going to require that he tell him everything but this is where that gets confusing though when it turns out later that mendez is just um is just a telosian projection
2: right (laughs) Well, well that's the tough part about it because yeah, spock um spock is obviously trying to use logic and he just happened to get very lucky maybe he got lucky or maybe he knew that mendez was a projection you know that's a good question does spock know that this mendez is fake mendez is tolosian mendez because he he does as you say he jockeyed mendez into this position to ask him why why are you doing this therefore he gets to show the whole story but this raises another question Was Spock somehow in contact with the Talosians before all of this secretly to know that this projection would be coming from Talos to show the story during the course of this court martial trial?
0: Well, we know that Spock was in uh, contact with the Talosians beforehand because the Talosians say that the whole reason that they have the court martial is to distract Spock. I mean, distract Kirk. Distract Kirk. Yeah, yeah. The Talosians say that Spock informed them of Kirk's force of will. So Kirk would have been able to figure out how to get control of the Enterprise again. And so what they did instead was they, they, they dummy up this whole court martial idea so that Kirk is distracted by that. Yeah. Rather than, you know, distracted by how do I regain control of my ship? Which the Telosians, you know, after Spock convinces them, Telosians are fairly, fairly convinced that uh, Kirk would be able to do that. So we need something really big, like maybe the death of his first officer, Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> yeah. to distract him. It has to, be, it has to be big.
2: So then this leads me kind of to this line that McCoy has. He, he says to Kirk, basically, I'm paraphrasing, it would be understandable for you or I to go off half-cocked, given the right circumstances, but it would be impossible for Spock. But clearly it is totally possible for Spock, and Spock has taken this to an extreme to a huge extreme, because you have to wonder: Is this the kind of thing that McCoy would do, given his loyalty to Kirk or to anybody else uh, who are his friends, his compatriots on the ship? Is it something that Kirk would do? You're going to make me say something borderline dirty. <laughs> no, you are. I mean,
0: because here's the thing: Spock is not going off half cocked. Mm-hmm. He's he's. I mean, he's going off. Um, See, I don't want to say it full cock. Okay? Uh, they are completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he's 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 figured all of this out. He knows exactly what he's doing. McCoy is right. McCoy might be the kind of guy who just ah, this isn't working. I'm going to take over the ship. You know, or or, yeah. or Kirk might do that as well. But but Spock really put a lot of thought into this. I mean, every part of this has been. Even if we decide that it was a completely illogical thing for Spock to have done and a completely illogical course of action for Spock to have taken, he's very logical or at the very least methodical about how he's doing it. There is no part of this that's been left to chance, especially if he knew about fake Mendez. Now, if he didn't know about fake Mendez, then maybe he just figured, eh, ship's going to be under computer control anyway. Whatever. Let's go. (laughs) I guess the one thing he left to chance was when he broke into Computer Central somebody might have pulled a phaser
2: yeah that's the
0: one thing that he didn't know
2: yeah true true well you know again this is one of those moments on the mission log where we have to say well we can only cover we can only review and discuss what we are given for sure Mm -hmm. you know we we can't really speculate on what didn't happen if you were to, to put it that way and um but but these questions kind of do come up, and um, you have to say, well, okay, Starfleet has the death penalty on this. So Spock is just totally running with the idea that he is putting himself and other crew members here in the position of potentially facing the death penalty. Right. But you have to wonder, what would the repercussions ever be if... From the beginning, Starfleet had just treated this as an open book case. You know, again, the reality is we're we're making a TV show here and we have to get the drama up on screen. Right. Okay. But then the question that that I hate to speculate about because we're not given that on screen is, well, if from the very beginning we had just said Talos 4 is a place that is forbidden by Starfleet. But we're going to tell you why. (laughs) You know, Um, we're not going to make it a secret. We're going to tell you why this is, and you run a huge risk of being there, so just don't go there. But instead, we do all this kind of cloak and dagger stuff, and we make it the death penalty. I feel like the death penalty is overreaching a little bit.
0: Um, <laughs> well, because- remember, remember, though, the Talosians said that if you know, humanity had extended contact with Talos for that they would eventually learn their, their, um, the secret of mind control, and that would eventually destroy their civilization. Now, it may take a while. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the death penalty the, de- the death penalty did seem a little excessive. At
1: yeah. the same
0: time, I don't think you can leave it like an open thing, because as we talked about before, uh, if mind control like this is something that somebody else can learn, it's just like going back to Miri. So there's this horrible contagion that if the Romulans had stumbled across it, or if the uh, Klingons mm-hmm. had stumbled across it, or if just some ne'er-do-well like Harry Mudd had stumbled across it. Now, Harry Mudd doesn't have the patience, I don't think. Right. To, uh, to, to, to really learn the mind control of Talos IV. Uh, but the Romulans and the Klingons got nothing but time. So, yeah. I mean, making it completely off limits and not saying why may actually make sense. It was surprising to hear, though, that it was a death penalty offense.
2: Yeah, it still doesn't prevent anybody else from going there, which, you know, could be <laughs> trouble down the road. <laughs> and- and, and, and hey, you know what? Here's the thing. All right, because on an individual basis, maybe it's not such a bad thing. If, hey, if you want to walk right into this trap, then go right ahead. you can just step right into this trap that's waiting for you. Um, yeah. But we're not going to send anybody from Starfleet to rescue you uh, and, and bring you back because it is too dangerous. You know what I'm thinking? Here's a new place to move all of those prisoners from uh, the Tantalus Colony and Uh-oh. Dagger of the Mine. Interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking What's that Talos IV missed a bet by not opening itself up as a retirement community. <laughs> right. Because yes. nobody wants to sit yeah. around and well, I guess some people do want to sit around and watch TV in their in their in their in their uh, later years. But I assume that a lot of people do that because, you know, they don't really have the get up and go, you know, literally and figuratively to climb mountains or, 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 or sail the seas. But, mm-hmm. you know, relax, enjoy right. a leisurely retirement on Talos 4 where you can do whatever the heck you want. And then, right. you know, and then the Federation would probably be more than happy to keep bringing them food and machines and all the stuff they might ever need if they go ahead and take care of their their tired and elderly.
2: Well, so I'm glad, that, <laughs> I'm glad that you brought that up, though, because, I mean, we're kind of saying that in a joking way. But the, the one thing that I was thinking in a serious way about this is mm-hmm. that, uh, all right, we, we have something that is very serious going on here, and that is that Pike has been disabled Almost beyond any function, he can answer yes or no, and he can move
1: a tiny tiny
2: bit, just a tiny, tiny bit. Right. But he can't do anything else. And in reality, we have people around us all, you know, everywhere in the world who are... Invalids who are severely disabled, who, uh, you know, some just purely from a, a psychological or a mental process are shut out, right. uh, as they say, who, who cannot converse or, or interact. And I wondered as I was watching this, I was thinking, well, even more realistically, you know, we have a certain obligation as human beings to these other human beings who are facing that. If we were to get to a point where where you could do this, where where you can use sort of um obviously not, not a Telosian sort of uh a telekinetic or telepathic version of projecting this, but let's say you can hook up a brain to an electronic Simulation oh, and suddenly this.
0: this sounds like a good idea to you. Oh, when I'm siding with Dr. Roger Corby.
2: <laughs> I you're knew all it like, come to that. Well, how
0: can it not? I mean, you're all like, oh, this is a terrible thing. Would you want to do this? It's a slippery slope, my
2: friend. Well, I still think that, though. I, I'm, really, I'm really torn. I'm really torn about it because I, I, I do wonder, you know, again, if you present this false reality, mm-hmm. um, whether you want it or not. And you have to assume that people who are shut out like this, who are maybe not asking for that procedure, that process, is it right? Is it valid to to do that just because we can, because we on the outside think it's better? And that leads me to this other question that I have here. We see a very different Christopher Pike in the cage than we do in the menagerie. And I don't just mean physically. I mean that the Pike in the cage fights tooth and nail against this idea of being captive, even if it is benevolent captivity, as the Tolosians say. Mm-hmm. And he says, we would rather die than be in a cage. But now the circumstance has changed. So the extenuating circumstance now is that he has been a horrible accident. He's confined to a wheelchair. He cannot communicate at all. So do our circumstances affect so greatly our judgment now, about what is right and wrong.
0: Well, what is right and wrong for us individually. I mean I don't think Pike would ever say, you know what would be great is if we just captured a bunch of people and shoved them into this cage. But mm-hmm. I mean, you have this weird sort of paradox in this episode where this thing that he saw as a cage in, you know, thirteen years earlier is now really a gateway to, to a kind of freedom that he can no longer that he can no longer experience in the quote real world. But Pike, he, Pike keeps saying no, 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 no to oh, all see, of what's Yeah, I assume, though, that that was because he didn't want uh, Spock to risk his own life. They didn't okay. want Spock to risk the Enterprise and risk, you know, because Spock ends up risking uh, Kirk's career as well as his own life and certainly his own career. So my assumption was that Pike was being a bit altruistic there and saying, no, no, I don't want this for you. Although we don't really know, because all we get is yes and no from him, and mostly we get no throughout the entire yeah. episode. Now the other question right. is, if they had asked, because like, if he had been able to divorce himself from that idea, and we don't really know because it's not made clear, was he against the idea of going to Talos Four, and did he then change his mind because he was reminded of the feelings that he did have for Vena? While he was mm. there, and by the way, Vina was old when, right. when they right. got there. Vina was an adult when the Columbia crashed on Talos IV. It has been eighteen years, so Vina is a bit older than Pike at that point. It has now been thirteen years since the last time we were on Talos IV. Do we even know that Vina is still there, or are they now projecting for Pike the idea that he and Vina live happily ever after, where she's actually gone under her great reward, maybe five or ten years ago?
2: That is an excellent question it is the Uh, matrix you
0: were right it is it is it is a it is a different version of the matrix
2: and and then the question becomes well what do the telosians get out of it because oh tv dude tv are you kidding me
0: (laughs) this has been honestly i I gotta figure that the menagerie has been the best miniseries the telosians have seen probably since the enterprise last left (laughs) i mean this has got to be what the telosians get out of it is 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 a whole new programming director
2: there's Remember, a, the Telosians wanted more than that, though. They, they, they took the humans up to the surface yeah. to say, well, we also need you for our machinery, our agriculture to build a civilization. Okay. And Pike is in no position to do that. But you're forgetting the um,
0: – uh, I, I hate to use the word altruism again just because I've already used it once. But mm-hmm. I mean, Use you, it again. Go ahead. Okay. You're, you're forgetting the sort of altruistic nature of the Tolosians at the end of the episode when they realize how much – Humans hate to be in a cage, even if it's a good cage. I mean, mm-hmm. when they realize that putting them in the cage is sort of against their will, they'd rather kill themselves and anybody else around them than be, you know, a slave. Basically, then they decide, okay, well, we can't use humans, and the problem is, you guys were the best, so we're just going to die now. So I think the Telosians have made peace with, you know, with with the fact that their that their race is is not long for uh, the universe yeah so I think yeah they're just looking for something good to watch while they wait out their days
2: right wow it will go a long way for some good entertainment
1: (laughs) 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 are there messages and morals in the episode we watched or were they all in the episode that Kirk watched and whichever episode they were in do they stand up today
2: So at the end of every mission log, we like to present some questions to each other to see what we got out of the episode. So the first thing I'll ask you, Ken, is does this show, as a show, as a piece of entertainment, as a production, does it hold up?
0: Mm. Really tough question, honestly. I mean, if you've been watching it the way we've been watching it, it might be a little soon. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I might actually suggest that people, if they weren't doing this along with us, Maybe hold this till next season. Maybe watch the rest of uh, season one and then come back because, well, I don't think it's bad, and while it is neat and potentially mind blowing, as you say. That you know, people are getting this whole new look at Star Trek in the middle of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of fun, and so yeah. and that way it kind of holds up. At the same time, eh, there there are too many there there are a lot of logic problems here. I know that what Spock did was you know loyalty for Pike. And that everything ended up being okay. But really, Spock needs to be drummed out of Starfleet. Because yeah. he really just kind of yeah. took far too much on himself. Now, that said, that, that doesn't, that doesn't jibe with the message. I mean, you know, if we're talking about loyalty, if we're talking about, you know, respect for people, if we're talking about, you know, doing your best for people around you, then it, it wouldn't really work out to say, okay, but seriously, you're out of Starfleet. <laughs> so, right. so, I mean, if, if you try to look at it logically... Which, of course, you want to do, because you're talking about a Vulcan, for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. If you try to look at it logically, it doesn't really work. But if you just want to look at it as, you know, an examination of loyalty, um, an examination of character, certainly. Because we do get a lot more about Spock in this episode. I mean, he is not... Even though he's presented as humorless, he often, you know, pokes at at bones. And he often, you know, seems, you know, uh, kind of amused by the discomfort experienced by Kirk. Um while he's presented as emotionless, we get it in this in this episode that he's not. I'm going to step out of the timeline for a second. One of the most famous lines of Spock, both from the TV shows and the movies, is uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. For some mm-hmm. reason in this one, he chooses the needs of the one outweigh the right. needs of the one. And right. that's, that's a level of humanity uh, that, that that's more than half human, it seems to me. And so... Logically, it doesn't work, but yes, I think it works.
2: What about okay. you? Okay. Well, I, I'm going to go a little further than you did. I I, I think that the show stands up really well, just as a production. Because here's the thing. I, I guess I'm putting on my my producer hat for this. You know, mm-hmm. I'm looking at it from a production uh, standpoint, and I go, you know what? Of all the lousy clip shows that have ever been made, <laughs> every, every sitcom gets to that point where they have I... to bust out the clip show. I think. This is the granddaddy of them all, and this does it better than probably any other clip show possibly has done it. Um, Well, if this were actually
0: a clip show, I'd agree with you. But this is more like a Russian nesting doll of a TV show, right? Right. right. I mean, you've got this show, but then you open it up. Oh, look, there's another show.
2: Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, So I I think it's done very well, and I think the, the drama is good and solid. And I think it does give us a lot to ponder about spock now we may go nuts if we try to ponder that to the point of well how well does this fit in with the rest of spock that we know but we, we really are driving home that uh that core of humanity that he has that yeah. he will go that far for his friend and again we don't want to step out of the timeline too much but that has big payoff later on, (laughs) you know? Um, So I think that's really interesting stuff to ponder about Spock. And I, I, I think that just seeing the alternate enterprise here, Pike's enterprise is fascinating for a fan. I do agree with you. I think that's a great idea to watch season one and then watch this at the end of season one. Then go into season two, just because the you kind of want to get the other stuff out of the way. And then you get to sit down for this kind of heavy, dramatic courtroom drama with all the other stuff about Pike. It's also just not a bad idea to
0: give yourself a little distance. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, because seriously, you have just watched most of these two episodes uh, about nine or ten episodes ago.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, right so but this is the toughest question though does this have a message Mm, not one that
0: works exactly i mean again it goes back to the whole logic thing i'm okay with it not having a message though i mean you can say that loyalty to to friends and loved ones is always rewarded except i don't think that that's necessarily the case you could make Mm -hmm. the case that that is the message but i don't know that that message is always true and i don't know that that would necessarily be a message to live up to um just because you can think of some really extreme instances where, you know, you stay loyal to someone and, you know, knowing that what they're doing is awful and you end up in as much trouble, if not more, than they're in. So if we decided that, that was the message, then I don't feel like it would work out. But I don't really think this is an episode with a message. I think this is honestly more character study um, yeah. for for all three of them, for Bones, Kirk and Spock, uh, certainly mostly for Spock. But, but examining how their characters interact as well um, to a smaller degree, I
2: think. This whole plan could have gone horribly wrong, <laughs> yes. you know, Indeed. horribly wrong. And loyalty is an admirable trait in people. You want loyalty from your friends um, and you want to be loyal to your friends because uh, that does. It, it, it benefits you. It benefits your, your friends. It, it, it benefits the way that kind of our our social interactions and in our society is built. right? But, but you have to inject a certain amount of logic and transparency in that um, or, or else you, you can run this huge risk of, um, uh, well, in this case, death. But, you know, maybe that's not the thing we're looking out for in real life. But, but certainly you run this risk of, of having all of that backfire. Uh, horrifically, So I, it's tough to find a message here. I, I think, again, this is one of those episodes where we're presented with things to ponder. And from a character point of view, you get some great, rich moments out yeah. of this. Yeah. And I like seeing Kirk's sort of struggle. Do I trust my friend or do I not? We know that he's going to, but we like to see him kind of squirm with that for a little bit. Um, And we like seeing McCoy kind of blow up at that (laughs) a few times. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm not really finding a message here, which unfortunately, if we ask the question, well, does a message hold up? Well, we can't really say that it holds up if there's not really a solid message to hang your hat on with this one.
0: Right. But I mean, as you said, the production does
2: hold up. Yeah, I I, I do think it does. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well. Cool as I think you are, John, you're not the end-all be-all, and neither am I. Maybe somebody out there heard a message that we missed in the menagerie. If you did, please send it to us. We would love to hear from you. You can hit us up on our Facebook page. You can contact us on Twitter, at Mission MissionLogPod is our name there, at Pod. You can leave us a message on Skype, MissionLogPod is the name on Skype, or you can call us, 323-522-5641. Your comments may be used on a future edition of The Mission Log.
2: Next week's mission, Kirk narrowly escapes murder at the hands of an actor in The Conscience of the King.
1: Some of the music for The Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at Warp11.com and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at k-i-theory.com. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go arrange an episode of Mission Log that features the host listening to an episode of Mission Log. Should be trippy. And transmission.